Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. Thank you for joining us for uh, Antidote session on alternative futures with a really special guest, highly anticipated guest, Yanis Varoufakis. Thanks for joining us. Scott, it's a wonderful pleasure. Um, you've got quite a long association with Australia. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? And when was the last time that you were out here? I was there just before the lockdown hit my country here in Greece. Uh, my association began um, in 1987 when Margaret Thatcher won the third successive election. And at that moment, I remember that evening when the result came out, I thought, OK, I need to get out of here. But I didn't know where to go to. And um, um, completely by some kind of historical fluke, uh, soon after that, I received uh, an invitation uh, to join Sydney University. I, I was at Cambridge at the time. And at first I thought, what am I going to do in Australia? I mean, I don't know anybody in Australia. And I remember it was the the bicentennial of the time was approaching and there, were, there was a live connection with Sydney um, and it was snowing and miserable in England. And I looked at, at the screen on you know, television and I thought, why am I resisting this? So, you know, I made tracks and spent 12 years at Sydney University and I have an Australian daughter and I have an Australian passport and I've been afflicted by an Aussie condition in more ways than one. Oh, we might talk about that as the hour progresses, but we do only have you for an hour. So welcome back um, to Sydney Thank virtually um, via our friends at the Opera House, although there are people tuning in from right around the country. So we've got, we've got an audience of the whole country, which is wonderful. We have you for one precious hour. Um, you're probably aware that things aren't so great here. Uh, we could spend the whole hour pulling apart how not great things are, but we're here... Um, in a session called Alternative Futures. So we're not going to do that. We're going to move beyond critique and talk about proposals and ideas. And I, I, what I wanted to kick off with was the, it feels to me like the first thing we've got to crack is the sense that there is no alternative, that there's no point. Obviously, you're a believer that there are alternative futures. So is it realistic to imagine that? Absolutely. The most unrealistic and allow me to say, idiotic conviction, is to think that um, uh, we live in the best of all possible worlds. Remember when Voltaire wanted to satirize conservatism, he wrote in Candide, that uh, very brief novel, he wrote the character Pangloss, who was a great believer in the theory that, um, yeah, the, the world we live in may be a mess, may you know, suck proverbially. Uh, but it is the best of all possible worlds. And the, the Anglos is um, a very learned and smart figure in Voltaire, uh, whom Voltaire uses in order to satirize this view that things can't be better than they are, even if we're not satisfied with the way they are. Things could be very different. And that is the most progressive and subversive uh, thought that... Um, uh, we need to entertain, actually. Well, all right. Second and hopefully last reference to Margaret Thatcher um, in this talk. 
She had this phrase, Tina, there is no alternative, which I just interpret as this kind of um, sense within neoliberalism that there is no way out. Capitalism is too adaptive. It changes, it evolves, it absorbs things and commodifies them and spits them back out into the market again. So tell us a bit about these alternative futures. How do we break out of that? Well, you see, the thing is that um, um, we live in a system called capitalism. Its supporters, and primarily those who benefit from it, the very few, uh, would like us to believe that it is the natural order of things. I mean, indeed, Scott, if you look back at any kind of regime, you know, feudalism, ancient Rome, it doesn't matter. You know, the emperor, the feudal lord, always had an incentive to convince the plebs that um, they lived in a natural order of things. I mean, it was supposed to be divine intervention that determined uh, who was ruling them. So it was, you know, it, it, the, the fate of people uh, was um, meant to reflect a divine order. Uh, but capitalism is uh, a very unruly beast in the sense that, um, uh, and this is something we can discuss if you want, uh, it is undermining itself. Uh, I'm often asked as a lefty, uh, who's going to overthrow capitalism? And the journalists that put this question to me usually expected to say the left, me, our movement, our party, and the answer that I give is capitalism. Capitalism is undermining capitalism. And indeed, Scott, I, I have a very controversial um, theory, uh, controversial even within the left, that uh, 2008, the GFC, the great financial crisis, was to capitalism, that which 1991 was to socialism. In other words, it's death knell. I don't believe we live in a capitalist regime anymore. I call it techno-feudalism. So um, if I'm right, and of course may, most people disagree with me, uh, already we live in an alternative system, a system that is not that which Margaret Thatcher, Adam Smith, uh, you know, John Howard uh, had defended. Um, already yeah. we live in a system where you know, private profit is no longer the, the driving force of it. Um, it is central bank money. <laughs> uh, we already live in a system where the market has been displaced by platforms, uh, you know, Amazon and Google and so on. They are fiefdoms. They are not, nothing like a marketplace. Uh, only they are you know, technologically powered. So if, if I'm writing that, uh, the world is changing. And as I put it in the concluding chapter of a book I wrote addressing my Sydney Cider daughter, talking to my daughter about the economy a few years ago, I said, look, folks, with the, the, the crisis of capitalism, the great financial crisis, which never went away, and the technological digital platforms that are uh, emerging, uh, we are moving in a direction that has infinite possibilities. Uh, and I used a filmic um, uh, analogy. We are either moving towards the matrix where we become enslaved and totally exploited by the machines that we have uh, created. Or we move towards Star Trek, which is um, the ultimate uh, liberal communism, where nobody works and you know, people have philosophical discussions and explore the universe, an ancient Greek agora in space. Uh, so it's our choice Wh which of the two extremes we approach or where in between we go. So the, the alternatives are here, 
they are infinite and we better make sure that we are the ones who choose where we go. It's not left to some kind of default device, which will take us, I believe, if we leave it to, you know, to, 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 the, to the rich to decide where we're going to go to, we're going to move towards the matrix, not towards Star Trek. So, okay, this has already gone in an unexpected direction, which is great. Um, <laughs> you've written a book more recently um, called Another Now, Dispatches from an Alternative Present, and I love every word of that title. One of the reviews describes it as, imagine if Occupy and Extinction Rebellion actually won. So if all of these network social movements operating right around the world manage to prevail, what does it look like? What kind of world do we get? Well, b before I answer that, allow me to just provide some of the context of the book. Uh, I'm a left, uh, fully aware of the failures of the left and very scared also of what happens if my side of politics wins, right? Because our side of politics has a tendency towards uh, authoritarianism. You know, it was the left that created the gulag. That doesn't stop me from being a lefty. It makes me very awkward and ambiguous and worried left. Uh, right. You know, for years, I've been criticizing capitalism, the Thatcherism, neoliberalism, and so on. And smart opponents would always bamboozle me with a question. Okay, mate, if you don't like capitalism, what's the alternative? And of course, it's a very difficult question to answer. And I didn't have an answer to that. Um, because you can say general things like, uh, you know, like the, the, the answer Karl Marx provided, which is uh, from each according to their capacities, to each according to his or her needs, right? But that's just the slogan. It's not an actual response to, you know, what happens to the banks, what happens to land deals, who decides, uh, yeah. you know, the distribution of labor and so on. Um, so I decided to sit down and write this book. And I tried to imagine what would have happened if Occupy Wall Street, because Extinction Rebellion didn't exist in 2008, when the GFC took place, there were progressive movements all over the world. Uh, the political party I belong to now here in Greece is um, an offspring, an offshoot of that. Uh, Podemos in, in, um, in Spain, uh, you know, the, the left of the Labour Party in Britain, Bernie Sanders. We are all effectively children of the GFC. Um, we had one. What would the realistic utopia that we might want to create look like that. that so I, I wrote a novel in which there, in 2008, the financial crisis is so gigantic that the timeline bifurcates. So there's one trajectory, the one we live in, but my characters uh, in 2025, well, there's another trajectory where people did things differently in 2008 and um, capitalism died. So market survived, but capitalism didn't. So, okay, now coming to your question. Um, it's a very complicated story because what I tried to do was to write a blueprint in the form of a novel of a world without capitalism. And what does that mean really? Uh, to cut a very long story as short as I can make it, uh, two things primarily. Firstly, there is no labor market. For there not to be a labor market, but for there to be markets and corporations and freedom of movement of laborers from one company to another, uh, what makes that possible is a new corporate law, 
which uh, specifies the one person or one employee, one share, one vote principle in my other now. So imagine that in a corporation, whatever corporation is from a very, from a small restaurant to, you know, Google. Uh, imagine if every employee has one share and that grants them one vote in decision-making. So they're all shareholders, but shares cannot be purchased and they cannot be sold. Think of shares in my other now as a library card in a university. Uh, you get it when you become a student, when you enroll, uh, you can use it. It's very useful. You can even use it in order to vote in elections, in referenda, in your student's union. Uh, but you can't trade it, you can't lease it, you can't buy it, you cannot hire it. And then at the end, when you are out, you have to hand it over or it's no longer valid. So, because if you have that, then suddenly everybody's a shareholder in a company in which they work. And there can be no shareholders who do not work in the company. So suddenly there's no labor market. Everybody is sharing profits. There is no distinction between profits and wages. So that's one aspect of my other now political economy, if you want. The second one is there are no banks, no commercial banks the way we understand them. Uh, oh, let's just pause and, and let that sink in just for a moment. Yeah. Let's just imagine yes, that sure. thought. Okay, go. There are no banks. Why are there no banks? Not because the regime is authoritarian and it bans banks. But no, um, let me remind our friends who are watching that as we speak, the Reserve Bank of Australia, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, our central banks are printing money like there is no tomorrow. And it's not actually printing, it's not, that, it's not paper money. So what happens is the, Reserve, the, bank, the National Bank of Australia, the Commonwealth Bank, you know, all the commercial banks, have a bank account with a central bank, with the Reserve Bank of Australia. As we speak, this is not in my other now, this is in this now, in, in our present dystopic now. Uh, and what, the way that the central bank prints money to stimulate the economy during the pandemic, after the GFC, I mean, perpetually since 2008, this is what they've been doing. Uh, the way they do it is, all they do is they pick up the phone from Canberra, from the Reserve Bank of Australia, uh, they call the, the chief at Commonwealth Bank and say, look, we've just give, given you an overdraft on your account with us, a um, billion or a million, hundred million or so, right? Uh, the idea is that the Commonwealth Bank is going to take this overdraft and lend it to you or to little people, businesses and so on, so that they can hire people, invest and stimulate the economy. Right. But of course, when uh, the Commonwealth or the National Australia Bank or in Britain, the Barclays Bank, in Germany, Deutsche Bank, in America, Bank of America, when they get this money, they look around and all they see is little people who are struggling. So they say, no, we're not going to give them the money because we're never going to get it back. So instead, what they do is they call BHP and they call Siemens and they call Volkswagen the, you know, and Apple the rich corporations because they trust them. But those rich corporations are already sitting on a stash of savings. But they take the money because it comes to them at zero interest rate. And what they do is, BHP and the rest, is they go to the stock exchange and they buy back their own shares. And the share price goes up, but no investment takes place. This is why inequality is burgeoning, uh, but no green, green, good quality jobs are being created. But in my other now, what happens is this. The middleman, which is the commercial bank, the National Australia banks, the Commonwealth, the Barclays banks, the Deutsche banks are cut off. What in my other now, what happens is the central bank 
gives everyone a bank account. Yeah. Everybody watching tonight gets a bank account with the central bank, the Reserve Bank of Australia. It's very easy to do now. It's a digital account. And you can even get an app on your phone to make payments. So suddenly, if the, if the central bank was to stimulate the economy, they don't need to give it to the bankers. They give it to you directly. Uh, already, you know, under Kevin Rudd in 2009, you remember that every Australian family got uh, a sum of Australian dollars. Now, why can't the central bank, instead of giving it to the commercial banks, put it into everybody's account? But if you can do that, then why not give a universal basic income to everyone, a certain amount every month, which can be adjusted in order to take account of inflation and so on. So in my other now, everybody has an account with the Reserve Bank of Australia. If everybody has an account with the Reserve Bank of Australia and it's free, all right, you can have a bank account without paying fees to the bank. Why would you want to open an account with a commercial bank? And if there are no shares to trade, most of the business of commercial banks is not aimed at you, at retail customers. No, most of what they do is they lend walls of money to speculators to speculate in the stock exchange. But if there's no stock exchange, because we remember in my others now, we have one share, one person, one vote, and shares are not tradable, so there's no stock exchange. Suddenly, the banks become obsolete and they die out. You don't need to ban them. They simply, there's no purpose for them. They become extinct through a Darwinian process. So if you've got... Um, if you end with the stock exchange and you end with the financial system and the financial system becomes um, a people-centric ledger on the central bank and you can even have a blockchain technology employed, uh, not Bitcoin, but the blockchain technology. Why am I saying that? Because nobody trusts the central bank or politicians for that matter. They think, oh, you know, maybe they will create a lot of money for their friends, for you know, just to stimulate the economy during the election cycle and so on. But if you have blockchain, this, this central bank ledger where everybody has a bank account is blockchain-based, then everybody knows exactly how much money there is in the system. So this, the, the central bank is transparent while preserving perfect anonymity when it comes to the transaction between us. So suddenly we've done away with capitalism, but we have a market system. We have companies that compete, that produce stuff, um, you have shareholders, except that the shareholders are the people working in them, and the shares are not tradable. Uh, you have no financial markets, even though you have perfect financial openness and financial transactions that are free for everyone. Uh, you can have some small um, credit cooperative banks where what happens effectively is they act as middlemen or women. They put together people who have saved a lot of money with people who are young and they would like to have some money in order to invest in their businesses, in their cooperative businesses. So this is the other now, the realistic utopia I tried to create. So my three characters, Iris, Eva and Costa in 2025, chance upon a wormhole that allows them to gain glimpses of this alternative system. And they're not all, they're not all in perfect agreement. So I've got about 500 questions. I'm gonna try and narrow it down. What do they see has happened to the public sector through the wormhole? What's what's you've you've described quite a radical vision for how the private sector has been restructured, some of it out of existence. What's left of public transport, public housing, public education um, in that alternative? Well, it's 
this is a crucial question. You can imagine the headaches I had trying to answer this question in writing the book. (laughs) I think the the greatest headache I had was housing, land. How is land used when you are moving away from capitals, but you want markets? So the solution I found for that, um, and it's the result of talking to environmentalists and people who have been thinking about the problem of land use, uh, because we don't want to go to a Soviet Union-like solution where the state owns everything and the bureaucrats and the politicians, whether they are, they are elected or not, doesn't matter, uh, are the ones who decide who lives where and who owns what, effectively. Uh, so the, 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 the broad answer to your question, what happens to the state, is the state becomes um, smaller, it shrinks, and communities local communities uh, acquire a lot more power. In my book, I have adopted the ancient Athenian conviction that elections favor the oligarchy. Uh, This surprises many people when I tell them, when I remind them that in ancient Athens, the Democrats hated elections and the aristocrats, the oligarchs loved them because they could manipulate them. Uh, Even back then, they could buy elections. Uh, They had a better speakers, uh, orators, because they were better educated. Um, So the Democrats favored sortition. In other words, selecting by lot, by lottery, just like the jury system, uh, for a period of six months, one year, uh, the officials, even judges in ancient Athens were selected by lot. The only two positions that were not selected by lot and were elected were the general and the central banker. And interestingly, the central banker I don't know whether you know that, was always a slave because um, only slaves could be flogged and they wanted to retain the right to flog the central banker if uh, he misbehaved. So uh, maybe we can, you know, come back to slavery just for the bankers. No, I'm just joking. Don't take, don't quote me on that. <laughs> but uh, we're um, only on live broadcast. Um, amazing. <laughs> All right. So we've, we've abolished the stock market and just, hedge just funds. Stop, just one second. But we've brought sortition back. Go ahead. Yeah, good sortition back. So land, because I didn't answer your question. Uh, in, in, in another now, um, in my another now, every county uh, has um, a council that comprises uh, citizens that are selected by sortition randomly, and they change uh, every two years, and in a staggered way so that not all of them leave at once, a bit like the, um, the Senate where you elect half of the Senate this year, the other half in two years and so on, so that there's a sense of continuity. And this council uh, decides how to divide the council land between two zones, the commercial zone and the social zone. So the commercial zone is used in order to make the money that is invested in the social zone. Uh, In the social zone, you have council housing. And you have um, a system with uh, um, local participation and local decision-making as to who gets which housing. Uh, The commercial zone generates the the money, the income, so that the social zone can become um, updated, upgraded. And the way that they do it in the commercial zone, I came up with this uh, crazy, almost neoliberal idea, is that you have a permanent auction. In order to um, decide who gets this corner shop or that um, maybe private house in the commercial zone, 
by paying, right? Not like in the social zone where it's free. Uh, what you do is you have to declare to the community what your valuation is of that plot of land, of that building, of that office. And you pay a percentage of the valuation to the community. Now, what gives you an incentive not to undervalue it? The fact that at any point in time, anyone can outbid you. There's not an auction every six months, no, but it's in real time. Anybody can come and say, I'm prepared to give a higher valuation to this flat. You're out in six weeks. So that gives you an incentive to declare what you really truly believe is the value, what the maximum is you are prepared to pay for it. Otherwise, you can be thrown out. And the money from that commercial zone is used in order to build social housing, social amenities, um, you know, parks, you know, uh, communal parks and so on in the, in the social zone. So th there are quite a few intricacies in my blueprint in another now. And I have my characters, as you mentioned very briefly before, uh, huge, you know, contesting these um, details and clashing with one another. Why? Why did I, did I do that? Because I'm not sure of what the right mm -hmm. way of doing things is. So that's yeah. why I wrote a novel. I have characters that disagree with one another, and I, I have allowed them uh, to express different views that I hold and you know, to learn from them by almost watching them fight it out. Well, and it leaves space for the reader as well to, to have their own views. This might be a little bit unfair to throw um, to someone who lives far from here. Um, speaking, we're speaking to you, I think, in Athens, but you have had a long association with Australia. What I was, what was coming to mind as you were speaking is what, what do you do on colonial ground where the whole enterprise of economics and land ownership is based on an act of intergenerational theft and dispossession? Um, with, you know, sovereignty over the ground where I'm sitting wasn't ever ceded. There's no treaty. There's no, um, you know, resolution. What, what do we do where the, the ground itself the tenure of it is unsettled. Well, in my my another now will enrage property owners because suddenly uh, you lose all titles to property, uh, but in a gradual way. So the idea is that the rebels in my book, the ones that took over uh, and successfully um, you know, sort of overthrew capitalism between 2009 and 2013 in my book, right? <laughs> um, they said, okay, so if you, know, if, if you have an, a nice house like the one I'm living in, you can live in there until you die, but you cannot in, pass it on to your kids. Then it goes back to public ownership. Every single post plot of land, every single building goes to public ownership. And it's the communities that decide the separation of the commercial zone from the social zone. Uh, you have markets in the commercial zone. You even have a permanent auction where you are allowed to continuously bid for bits of, bits of land that the community decided which ones they will be, uh, but uh, you don't have property rights. You can lease it for a certain point of time, and you can only, certain, mm -hmm. you can only lease certain you know, uh, parts of real estate. Uh, so that would be a spectacular opportunity uh, to do away with terra nullius and all its ill effects on uh, the dispossession of native right. populations, not just in Australia, but in Canada, everywhere. Right. Um, are you tracking the debate on rights of nature 
on legal rights of nature as entities with a right to exist. Does that kind of play into your thinking at all? Like it feels well, like it's emerged um, quite rapidly. Yeah, I remember the first time I had this conversation was with Rafael Correa, who used to be the president of Ecuador. And I'm mentioning that because, as you know, he was the first political leader to have introduced in the constitution of the country uh, the right of forests, the rights of forests, of nature. So this was a very interesting conversation that I've been having with uh, my friends and comrades in Ecuador. Um, so, yes, I, I have been following. It's a very difficult one. Look, I don't have a legal mind, I have to tell you. I have great intolerance for legal discussions and maybe incapacity to follow them. But um, I tend not to care very much about rights because, you know, um, I read the American Constitution and it's a beautiful document, a wonderful document. I read the Greek Constitution, especially the ones, the revolutionary constitutions here in Greece from the 1820s onwards. The wonderful pieces of enlightenment and the reality uh, is, however, so starkly different. Uh, none of the rights mentioned in there make any difference. They are all violated left, right, and center. So uh, I'm far more interested in what happens on the ground right. in people's daily lives uh, than in um, uh, theoretical rights that are there to cover up for their violation. Your um, mention of Rafael Correa has reminded me of something I wanted to ask you. You've been a longtime supporter of Julian Assange, um, an Australian citizen and a publisher who's in enormous legal jeopardy at the moment, British prison. Um, what role for publishers and truth tellers in the kind of world that we're envisioning now? Well, if you don't have a share market and you've got one share, one person, one vote, you don't have conglomerates because it's impossible, you know, by nature. Uh, if the employees have a vote on everything, you cannot have the high concentration of power that you have under capitalism. So these big conglomerates will, will be broken up. Why? Because the shareholders would want to break them up. The shareholders will be the employees. They will not be able to have a transnational corporation that has, you know, 300,000 employees because 300,000 people cannot organize the, uh, you know, the, the, the democratically run, self-managed firm. So by definition, you're not going to have the military industrial complex, the big pharma, the, you know, uh, uh, the big tech, which is creating the need for huge armies like the American army or the Russian army, whatever, I'm not, I don't want to focus just on the United States, which then needs to have a, a national security system, which then persecutes people like Julian Assange. And let me just take this opportunity that you gave me to say that uh, it doesn't really matter what you think of Julian as a person. I mean, I find him, I, 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 I'm a good friend of his, right? But I'm also infuriated by him. And that's how I am by most of my friends. Uh, but look, even if you think that he's the worst person on earth, just now with Afghanistan, remember, why are they killing him? And they're killing him. They have him in solitary confinement, 23 hours a day. A man that has never been convicted of anything. They are steadily, on a daily basis, murdering Julian Assange. That's what they're doing. And why are they doing it? Because he told you about the crimes against humanity 
perpetrated in Afghanistan by the American forces, in Iraq. This is why he's in there. Had he not done that, he would have been scot-free, right? Um, we need to remember that. And we need to be outraged by that, independently of what you think about Julian Assange. All right, well, we've got to get him out. We do need people like that. Um, so the, the kind of the, the hinge point in history in the book kicks off in around 2008. But of course, um, we're still on this timeline. So we've got Extinction Rebellion. We've still got, even though we don't have Occupy movement, those ideas and those people are all still out there like seeds in the ground. So we've talked a fair bit about what does this new world look like? Let's talk a bit about how. How do we get there? We do have these incredible global movements in a way that haven't existed in my lifetime, or at least since the late 1990s. School strike, Extinction Rebellion, um, and these kind of waves of ideas that spread around the world very rapidly, like Black Lives Matter. Um, tell us of the how. How do we kick off one of those branch points in history? Or do you think it's happening as we're speaking? Well, a brief note about uh, Extinction Rebellion, just because you mentioned him. You know, lots of uh, very serious people in inverted commas tell me, oh, come on, these people are crazy. And uh, they are super pessimists about the extinction of the human race and so on and so forth. I mean, what I tell them and I say to them is that, um, who is more accurate? Uh, right. the, the, the utter pessimists of extinction rebellion or people like you who've been sitting on, on their hands for years while the climate is breaking down? Uh, I don't think that the extinction rebellion are going to take over, but they have put on the agenda net zero. It would not have been on the agenda uh, without extin extinction rebellion. Now, answering your question, look, um, I have a dedicated a whole chapter to the book on how I think the um, transformation uh, from capitalism to a democratized society with democratized markets uh, without capitalism could take place. Uh, and in it, what I try to do is to capture the essence of what I think we must do differently as progressives, as rebels. <laughs> uh, if you look at the, the way in which the world was transformed from the 19th century onwards, let's say by trade unions that banded together to stop the gross exploitation of miners, of dock workers, of uh, building site workers, of uh, nurses and so on, of shearers in Australia. Uh, the model of action was um, extremely costly to individual rebels. So think of miners going on strike or, um, or shearers going on strike. They suffered financially. They couldn't put food on the table during the strike because they couldn't afford, afford to buy food. Uh, they were fired. They were vilified. Uh, they, sometimes uh, they were physically attacked. Uh, the cost at the personal level for changing the world was gigantic. And the benefit to them by private, the private benefit was often tiny, if non-existent. And yet it happened and they transformed the world. I think that modern technologies, while at the same time giving people like Zuckerberg and Google and so on, uh, and Jeff Bezos, remarkable power, 
they also give rebels a remarkable power. And they give us the opportunity to reverse the cost-benefit ratio of the 19th century. In other words, instead of having gigantic costs to the individual rebels and tiny benefits for the rebels, to reverse that, to have very small costs on the private level and very great impact. So in the book, I try to imagine, um, I conjured up the image of a fictitious character I called Esmeralda, somebody who was working as a financial engineer in Lehman Brothers in 2008. She got really pissed off with uh, the industry in which she was serving. She realized all the lies that she was being told. She had all the financial skills, the financial engineering skills. She got other people like herself together and they created an organization which uh, it's, doesn't exist, I made it up, uh, called Crowd Shorters. And what they did was they <laughs> used the financial instruments of the financial sector to attack the companies that were, for instance, um, um, taking over whole tracts of land from native populations like miners. They were attacking, financially attacking, uh, the companies uh, taking over privatized utilities like water boards and so on. And the way they did it was they created um, financial instruments that would short sequentially and in a targeted way the shares of these companies. Uh, and together with other organizations, again, that I, I <laughs> my, fan, you know, my um, imagination, <clears throat> like um, global organizations, where they combined strikes in warehouses and in factories with consumer boycotts. So th th this um, blending of the old-fashioned Extinction Rebellion, trades union activity, interventions, with using financial instruments and consumer boycotts on the internet, it allows people to feel that for instance, in my book, I have this idea that uh, in Britain, for instance, where we know that uh, the privatized water companies are really abusing the system. You know, they 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 neglect the sewer system. They 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 they, they, they don't invest in the conservation of water and so on. So the Esmeraldas crowd shortages um, invite people in separate areas not to pay their water bill for two months. They crowdsource crowdsource the money to give them after two months in order to pay the fine so that they don't have to, you know, to, to suffer a personal cost, these households. But by having rolling such payment strikes uh, while shorting the, the, the shares of those companies, they bring them down, um, which, which was quite interesting for me when after the book was published, uh, I don't know whether you, you remember the GameStop incident, where individual, very small retail buyers of shares, people who had never purchased shares before, banded together to short two hedge funds that had tried to shut down GameStop, the company. And I had Janet saying, calling up and saying, oh, have the crowd shorters come to fruition? You know, not, not yet, but you know, the idea is there. And you, know, you and I are members of a wonderful international organization called the Progressive International. It's going to be my next question. Maybe we should go. talk about that. Yeah, go. Just well, made me think of Amazon, the Amazon um, actions earlier this year. That's, that's, that's what it was based on. Yeah. 
Last December, on Black Friday, our organization, the Progressive International, uh, organized a rolling strike against Amazon. And it was called, it was entitled Make Amazon Pay. Hashtag Make Amazon Pay. And it was a, a strike involving trade unions, um, altogether 200 million members. And we had one strike that started in Bangladesh, in Amazon warehouse in Bangladesh, moved to India, from India to Germany, from Germany to New Jersey, and from New Jersey to Seattle. And we have this glo global strike, in a sense. Um, I wanted us to have a global consumer boycott as well, because what really gets Jeff Bezos is not so much a few warehouses being paralyzed for a couple of days. What really would get Jeff Bezos is if we had a global you know, day of inaction, as I call it in the book, uh, or as Meralda calls it in the book, a day of inaction. That is, for one day, please don't visit Amazon.com anywhere in the world. You know, one day, it doesn't cost you anything. This is why, why I, was, I was referring before, Scott, to, you know, m tiny little personal sacrifices for maximum global impact. So what does it do? I'm, we're not saying to you don't buy from Amazon, but let's say next Friday, nobody visits even. So imagine if the visitations to Amazon.com dropped by 50%, suddenly the share of Amazon would crash. Jeff Bezos would be very worried about that. So if you combine this with the strike in warehouse and you say, okay, we need hygienic conditions for staff. We need serious action on climate change. Uh, we need, you know, it becomes um, a global campaign with the capacity to move the world. Yeah. Except now we're not talking about fiction because that's, that's in process. That happened earlier this year, um, that, that Amazon action. But if we were... Um, if we were together in the Sydney Opera House with you and many, many people, this is the point where I'd ask for a show of hands, who's heard of Progressive International? And we would see a scatter. We would see no more than a dozen hands shoot up. So tell us a bit about that. You had an important role in getting that organization off the ground. What is it? Why do you think something like that is necessary? In 2018, um, quite a number of us were saying that, look, we are being squeezed. We're squeezed, being squeezed by two types of authoritarianism. You have the obvious authoritarianism of Donald Trump, of Bolsonaro in Brazil, you know, of the neo-fascists, I'm not going to be polite about them, of the neo-fascists of the world, Farage in Britain, the Alternative for Deutschland, you know, the, the new wave of neo-fascism. Uh, Modi in India, Orban in Hungary, that was one kind of authoritarianism that was on the rise and remains on the rise, even if Trump lost. Trumpism has not exactly been defeated. And then you have the authoritarianism of the liberal establishment, the ones who invaded Afghanistan, Iraq, the ones that um, shut down my country uh, and destroyed this economy with the austerity gone berserk in the, since 2010. Uh, and the two, if you, look at, if you think about it, you know, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, is a good juxtaposition. The two kinds of authoritarianism. Right. Yeah. Or you know, in Europe, um, the Brussels bureaucracy of Brussels on the one hand, and Farage and the Brexiteers on the other. They they actually interesting. They don't like each other. Take France, President Macron, and the neo-fascist Le Pen. They loathe each other. 
But they need one another. Macron is president only because of the threat that Le Pen would be president. And Le Pen needs Macron to introduce austerity to create the discontent that feeds her neo-fascist campaign. So, and the other observation, Scott, that led to the Progressive International is not only that this is a global phenomenon, but also we, have a, we live in a world where um, the bankers have internationalized their internationalists. If you go to Davos before the lockdown, because thankfully lockdown stopped them from going to Davos <laughs> on the Swiss Alps. One, one right? good thing. But yeah. if you ever went to Davos and you won't go, I've never been, but imagine now you're in Davos, you will find it's bankers nice. from the United States, from India, from Nigeria. You know, they are blacks, whites, uh, Arabs, Jews, and they are like brothers. Some sisters, usually men, right? They're like brothers. They're not racist. They're internationalists. But they are there in order to help one another, to make sure that the banking community is sitting on the necks of everyone around the world. Similarly, the fascists, their relationship between Modi and Trump and Farage and uh, Orban and so on is fantastic. They love one another. It's only the progressives that we have not internationalized, that we are scattered brains and we are scattered all over the world. We do not coordinate, you know. You folks in Australia try to do your own thing there. We in Greece try to do our own thing. We're not internationalized. So we need to internationalize. The progressives need to inter internationalize. And indeed, we're the only true internationalist humanists. We don't believe in borders. We are not afraid of the other. We are not anti-Semitic. We are not Islamophobic. We should be the ones that are organized. So I wrote an article. I was asked to write an article in The Guardian um, sometime in 2018. And the, the, the good editor uh, took this article off her own accord and gave it to Bernie Sanders to read and asked him to write a, sh a short comment. And Bernie Sanders wrote a very polite, uh, very nice, very uh, supportive uh, paragraph, fast paragraph, in which he approved of what I was saying. And what I was saying is we need the progressive international. And the editor had the, uh, the prescience, uh, the prescience to ask him to write also an article and then for me to comment. So the two articles were published side by side with two comments. And both of us are calling for a progressive international. So Bernie and I go together and said, okay, why don't we do it? <laughs> why don't we put our money where our mouth is? So uh, in November of 2008, we met in Vermont um, under the auspices of the Sanders Institute. And we had wonderful people there we had the, you know, uh, Fernando Haddad, who had run against Bolsonaro in Brazil. We had Susan Sarandon, the great actor and uh, activist. We had Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, who was still progressive back then in 2018. Uh, he took a wrong turn a bit later, but that's another matter. We had the, the prime minister of um, Iceland, Katrin Jakobsdottir. Well, you know, it was a gathering of progressives from around the world. So we made a call, an open call, for people to join the Progressive International, which was just coming to being there. Now, the presidential election in America intruded because of the arcane laws, electoral laws in America. Bernie was not allowed to participate in anything that had anything to do with anything outside the United States. The parochialism of the United States is also imprinted in their electoral law. So for about a year, um, Nothing much happened, but we relaunched it last year. We have now a council, uh, the former 
president of Brazil, and we hope future president of Brazil, Lula da Silva, is on it. We have Noam Chomsky, we have you, uh, we have a number of people. We have fantastic comrades from Nigeria, from Kenya, from Bangladesh, from the whole of Latin America. Which our first campaign was um, Make Amazon Pay. Uh, we are continuing. Uh, we have sent monitors in various places in Latin America to monitor elections. Um, so we, we are building it up and the enthusiasm is wonderful. It is. I strongly agree. Um, Summit for Vaccine Internationalism, which took place um, with some of our Indian colleagues, is one of the most powerful examples I think I've ever seen of how to fight vaccine apartheid um, from the grassroots. Most recently, a delegation to Brazil at the invitation of um, a very important alliance of Indigenous peoples um, from the Amazon. So, uh, again, I don't know whether the whether people who are on the call can see chat. You probably can't, but just look it up, progressive.international, if you're hearing it today for the first time. Um, I'm, I just feel like it's a huge sort of void in our movement architecture. So thank you for, for playing a part and kicking it off. Um, what, what are the signs you think we should look for that this kind of transition is actually underway, that we're not bound for dystopia, that it is wide open? What are the things that you, when you look around, you feel you can see the signs of it? Uh, look, wherever I see, I, I turn my eyes to, I see hope uh, in the midst of all the bleakness. Youngsters in particular, they, not just Extinction Rebellion youngsters, them as well, the <laughs> complete turnaround of the sentiment that we labored under in the 1990s. For me, Scott, the 1990s was awful because in the 1990s, we had this false sense of having arrived at the end of history. Uh, everything was just about entrepreneurship, about competitiveness. We were a global village. Everybody, you know, capitalism was working. Um, nobody was talking about the environment except for the greenies. Um, and in other words, never before has humanity been so disconnected from its own reality as it was in the 1990s. Today, we have exactly the opposite. When you talk to youngsters, when you talk to you know, school children, uh, students, uh, workers, uh, Uber drivers, everybody has a sense that things must change. And also that things can change. All that is needed is a program. This is my only criticism of Extinction Rebellion. Uh, it's not their job to do it, it's our job to do it. Us oldies have to pro provide the program because it's one thing to rebel, it's essential, but then when some you know, ABC journalist or BBC journalist or whatever, or Fox TV journalist shoves a microphone in your face and says, okay, so you don't like what's happening, what do you want to happen? How are you going to pay for the green transition? There, you need a program. Because if you don't have an answer to that, your movement fizzles out. This is where the Progressive International, Extinction Rebellion and so on, need to go hand in hand. In the future world in which you envisage and which millions of people around the world are busy working on, is there a place for nuclear weapons? No. There's no place for nuclear Gun. energy either, in my view. Wonderful. Uh, and okay. I'll tell you why. Oh, that was enough for you? 
Okay, new oh, weapons. I'm, I'm already I on mean, board. Why though. would we want to have weapons that destroy the planet? I mean, we're doing a very good job destroying the planet without nuclear weapons, but why do we want to do it so quickly? <laughs> in, a, in a flash, so to speak. But the reason why I'm also against nuclear power, uh, even if you forget about the question of nuclear waste, the fact that you know we are creating all this waste and like stupid children and we are putting it under the carpet, um, radioactive material. But even if we were to solve this out, sort this out, I remember something that Tony Benn, the wonderful Labour Party politician of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, said to me once. He said, "Look, I, I was in favour of nuclear power as a reformer, as a left-wing reformer when I moved into government uh, in the 70s." But when I realized that the, uh, the nature of the beast is such that you need to have very high security, because you know a nuclear explosion in a nuclear power station can, can be absolutely devastating. So you need to have security to prevent terrorism, accidents, and so on. That need creates the need to have a very um, introverted and powerful security apparatus. The moment you introduce that security apparatus, you introduce a cancer in your state, because that will always tend towards authoritarianism. So we really don't want you. Okay, I'm not even going to, go to to discuss nuclear weapons, but not nuclear power either. And, and in any case, we right. don't need it because it's too expensive and too dangerous. Yeah. All right, we're we're closing in on the end of the session. Um, it's the it's the sort of time where I think. Um, I would want to know what you what your advice is to people who are attracted both to the idea that there are alternative nows, there are alternative futures, and also that they're not settled, not in your own mind, not even in your own book, that they're wide open and they're open to contest and other ideas. What is what's what are the first steps that people can take? We're ready, but we're not sure where to where to begin. I don't believe in gurus who will tell people what to do. Uh, yes, oh, just, be, right. just begin <laughs> by accepting that Pangloss was a fool, that we don't live in the best of all possible worlds, that things could be very different as we speak. Yeah, let's start, start with right. that. And then everything let's else will that. follow. <clears throat> all right. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and your time. I know it's early in Athens and you kicked off with a coffee and it's um, one of my hopes that we're able to see you back here um, in this country before too long. Um, thanks so much. Can't for get rid of me. I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, your family now. Yeah. Um, I'd just like to extend As my thanks speaking, to... Scott, my, my daughter called me yeah, from shoot. Sydney. Which just just goes to show she doesn't she never listens to what I say, right? Yeah, she's or not paying attention to your schedule. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, um, and a, a huge warm thank you to everyone at the Opera House, Opera House, um, on the, all the folk behind the scenes, the Antidote team, the other speakers, and everybody who's worked really tirelessly under quite deranged circumstances actually to bring us together so that these conversations can be had. Um, it's wonderful to see you and let's consider this a conversation that's going to continue as we build the uh, the other nows, the alternative futures. Thank you, Scott. Thank you to everyone at Antidote. Um, I can't wait to come back to Australia.
You can watch this talk on stream and you'll find the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Ideas at the House. Thank you.